Bibles this morning to uh, James chapter 1. We're going through our study of James. And uh, I got to tell you, for me personally, this is a blessing beyond measure. It's been very, very good. And God I, indeed has many truths that he wants us to discover in this study. So praise the Lord. Over the past several weeks, we've looked at the fact that the, James tells us that God has a very definite purpose for the believer in trials. And last week we studied James 1.12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That crown of life being eternal life. James talks about persevering, bearing under the load. The load comes upon us, and God gives the believer strength to bear under the load. And we know that he has not only a purpose with trials, but God does intend for trials in the believer's life to be a cause of strengthening, a cause of strengthening, to build us up when we encounter various trials from the Lord. We are being tested not to see pass or fail, but to see that through faith we can endure. And listen, I know this is not uh, unique to anyone. I know that many of us are, have, will, and are enduring various trials. And I think it's important to realize the fact that God is not intending it to hurt us, not to hurt us, that God has equipped the believer in trials. And the great thing is, as we've already seen, that the believers can ask God for wisdom in the trials, and James says that God will give it over abundantly and without reproach. And that term without reproach mean, means that God is not going to call up anything and say, why should I give it to you, you know? Oh, you're this, you're that. He doesn't do that. To the believer, if he cries to the Lord for wisdom, God says, I'm going to give you wisdom in the trial. I'm going to give it abundantly. But there is a caveat. The caveat is what? We must ask, but we must ask in faith, not doubting. We must ask in faith. And that faith is in the plan and in the purpose and in the person of God. It is faith in the character of God. It is faith knowing that God is not going to do anything for me for any kind of evil purposes, any kind of sordid purpose. I can trust God's hand, although the trial may be difficult, although we may be at our wit's end, although we may be hanging by a fingernail. I could trust the person of God that he is the God that works all things for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose, even if at the time we don't know what that purpose is. We can trust in the person of God. And James adds this, the one who perseveres. Once he has been approved, that word is validated by God. Once he has been approved, James says, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised 
to those who love Him. The crown of life. Eternal life. Persevering. Read the history of the Christian church. It is not a glorious history of triumph after triumph after triumph. Kingdom after kingdom. Kingdom coming to the uh, submission and under the authority of the Lord. It is strewn with blood. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, as the saying goes. We read of men and women who had to overcome and had to endure overwhelming adversity, overwhelming persecutions, but continued to endure under the load. This was not written to certain Christians. The Word of God, divinely inspired, it's put here in the canon of the New Testament specifically because it is written to believers. And I've said this from the beginning of our study of James. I'm well aware that many of you are going through trials. Perhaps you just came out of a trial. Perhaps you've been in a trial several years. I don't look at this as something that we take lightly or broad brush. But the truths are there. And God calls us as believers in Christ to endure, to persevere, to remain steadfast, to hold to Christ. One of my favorite verses, some of you may know this, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? On earth, there's nothing I desire. My heart and my strength, many times they fail. Many times they fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you are a believer in Christ, then God is your strength and portion. If you are outside Jesus Christ, if you've never come to the place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, then the only strength you can draw on is yourself. And that is a strength that can be easily overcome by life circumstances, by even principalities and demonic forces. It is a strength that is easy to squander away. I love that the psalmist says, many times my heart, my emotions, the center of emotions, my heart and my strength may fail. Have you ever failed? You ever enter into a trial and you go, I, I, I'm not getting this. Why is, why is this happening? Like, why is this happening? Many times my heart and my strength may fail. Many times my human reasons fail me. But when all of that is done because I only have God in heaven, I can look and I can say God is the strength of my heart. And he is my portion. Always remember, no matter what, 
And what we've seen in the first 12 chapters so far of James is that it is that faith in the plan and in the purpose and in the person of God. We can trust God's character. We can trust that God is not a manipulator. We can trust that God would never lie to us. We can trust the very word of God. And we can put our hope in God. Today we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 16. And here, James talks and he's going to answer a question. Does God tempt us during our trials? Is God the one who tempts us? Is God the one who's to blame? Are we the ones when we're going through a trial and things are going wrong and we fall to sin, we could say, well, God put me here. It's God's problem. That's the question he's going to answer. It's coming right on the heels of blessed is the man who perseveres. Look at verses 13 through 16 with me. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. To answer this question today, we're going to look at three essential natures. Three essential natures that it's important for us to understand. The first one is the nature of God. We want to take a look at the nature of God. The second one is the nature of man. And we want to contrast the nature of God with the nature of man. And the third one is, of course, the nature of sin. And so let's take a look at the first one, the nature of God. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. From the beginning of our study of this epistle, as I previously mentioned, we have seen that God uses trials to strengthen believers. In James 12, we talked about that blessed is the one who perseveres, that once he has been approved, once he has been validated by God, he shall receive the crown of life. And he begins verse 13 here with this phrase, let no one say. I want to call your attention to that. In the Greek, that's called, the tense, the verb tense for that is an imperative. It is a present imperative. An imperative is a command. And James is saying, listen, don't even go there. Don't even go there. Don't say that when you were tempted that this is God. He gives this imperative command. He says when he is tempted... And the Greek word there is the, the, the noun form of that is parosmos, which means a test to be validated. And the important thing to know there is with that word in the Greek, the context defines its meaning. When it's used in a positive context, it refers to a test. When it's used in a negative context, it refers to a temptation, something for evil. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
We talked about that God uses trials to establish us, to strengthen us, to build our faith. But there's an opposite of that, is there not? There is the enemy, our adversary, the devil. And he would use trials to tempt us, to bring about sin, to get us to curse God, right? And so he's going to use that to doubt God, to curse God. James discusses the effects of trials that lead to sin. A simple way to think of tempted in the negative sense, that word parasmos, a simple way to think of it is an inducement to sin, to lure us, to get us out, and to get us the sin. So the question that James is asking here is, does indeed God tempt us? Can God tempt a believer? Not test the believer, tempt a believer. You know, as I was going through this, I came across 1 Corinthians 10.13. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, the Apostle Paul is very, very, very consistent with what we have seen in James when he speaks to trials. He uses the same words for temptation, but he uses it as a meaning from a test. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.13. You probably know this. Many of you know this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. There's the test. There's the test. You're undergoing a trial. It is a test by God, right? designed to strengthen your faith, what does it say? That God is faithful. God will not allow his believer to be tested beyond what they can endure, but with the testing will provide a way out. What a source of comfort for the believer in Jesus Christ. Amen? We have, we have that comfort. There's many times that I have recalled that verse in the middle of a trial, not understanding what it was, but I had to stay centered and say, Lord, you will provide a way out. You will give the grace to endure. So the question again being, can God tempt us with evil? And to understand that, it's important that we look at the nature of God. We're going to do just a quick flyover of the nature of God. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah is given a vision of God in the temple, right? He walks into the temple, he says, I see the Lord, high and exalted and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then he sees this amazing supernatural scene, angels flying back and forth, flying back and forth, and they are crying something aloud as they go back and forth. They are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, 
we tend to think that if we were there, we'd probably go, oh, this is so cool. But that wasn't the response of Isaiah. If you read in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet says, woe is me. I'm a man undone. That means I'm, I'm broken apart. For I have seen the holiness of God. And the holiness of God was so overwhelming that Isaiah thought he was going to die. The presence of God, the beauty of God, the essence of God, the glory of God is holy. It's holy. You ever notice that the angels didn't cry out, Righteous, righteous, righteous is the Lord God. Nor did they cry out, Merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord God. Or just, just, just is the Lord God. But they cried out, Holy, 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 the threefold holy is the Lord God. We also see this in Revelation 4 8 as John has his vision. In 4.8 he says, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night, listen to this, day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. He confirms Isaiah's vision. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, what do we mean? This is, this is it. It's a theology like pre-K. A little pre-K theology here. What do we mean by holy? Right? Well, God's character is holy. Holiness is not a mere portion of his character. God is completely and perfectly holy. I want you to get that first point. Right? And to say that God is holy, to say that God is holy, is to say that God is separate from impurity, separate from defect, Separate from evil, separate from sin. As a matter of fact, God cannot exist, coexist, dwell, or tolerate sin. Can't be done. His holiness is too pure. I know it's popular in this day and age that we talk about, you know, oh, you know, well, the Lord loves everybody and everything, and nothing, it seems like nothing this day seems to bother the Lord, that he kind of goes with the flow. But let me tell you something, sin bothers the Lord. It bothers the Lord to such an extent that the Lord gave his only begotten son to pay the penalty of sin. So there is no evil, no impurity, no defect in a holy God. 
Sinclair Ferguson says this, God's holiness means he is separate from sin, but but holiness in God also means wholeness. God's holiness, and I like this, is his godness. God's holiness is his godness. It is his being God in all means for him to be God. To meet God in holiness, therefore, is to be altogether overwhelmed by the discovery that he is God and not man. We could meet the most religious person in the world. We can meet some, you know, some evangelical hotshots, men that may have inspired us or influenced us, right? But we're still not going to cower in their presence. But if we were to have an encounter with the living God like Isaiah saw, we would fall on our faces if we were even to survive such a thing. Now, here's another important point. Because God is absolute purity and holiness. God is, I'm going to use a word here, God is impervious evil. What do I mean? That word impervious means that evil cannot penetrate. Impervious means the inability to penetrate. So God is impervious to evil. Evil cannot penetrate the character of God. It is an impossibility. It's an absolute impossibility. God's character is holy. And so therefore evil, therefore sin, therefore impurity, therefore any kind of defect cannot penetrate the character of God. It cannot penetrate the character of God. Therefore, what does that mean? Well, therefore it means that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor can God tempt anyone using evil or using sin as a means or a method to tempt. I want you to get that. God cannot use evil. Evil can't penetrate God. Therefore, he cannot use it as a means to tempt. What did James say here in, thir- in verse 13? Let no one say that when they are tempted, that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Notice, God cannot be tempted by evil. He's impervious to evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. As a result, we have a God who is entirely perfect and sinless. And because he is sinless, God does not, nor can he, use any evil, sinful means to tempt anyone. Now listen, a quick note on this holiness of God. right? Because I, I don't want this to be stale theology. I want this to be living truth in us. Because God is holy and he cannot tolerate sin, 
God does not associate with evil. We've established that. But the difference is we humans can sin and do sin. We are not like God. We are able to be penetrated by the evil influences of sin. And that is a direct result of the fall of mankind. We have been corrupted by our forefathers, by our patriarchs. We have been corrupted. We are subjected to sin. As a matter of fact, it's said we are not sinners because we sin. Just the opposite. We sin because we are sinners. That's who we are as human beings. And this is why, this is absolutely why mankind needed a Savior. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead. And I often use this analogy, and I'll use it again. If there were a dead person lying here, and I walked up to that person and said, why are you dead? Why do you want to be dead? You're missing all the fun. Why don't you just wake up and just join the rest of the living? Could that body or that corpse get up on its own? No. That's how Paul describes the state of the person outside of Jesus Christ. You're dead. You're dead to God. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. Now, the glory of the gospel doesn't end there, does it? No, because there's a word that follows that. But God, being rich in mercy, and you know the rest of the story, that by grace, by God's unmerited favor, by God bringing into existence that which did not exist. You know, it's amazing. If you think about it, if you go back to the creation, right? What choice did man have in his creation? He had none. God spoke the word. And human beings were created. When we're dead and we're lost in our trespasses and sin, we walk in a world of darkness. We walk under the authority of the prince of the power of this air. But, but God speaks the word. And the believer comes to life in Christ. So great is this, that God sent forth his son to be a savior. Some of you, at some point in your life, came to the place where you cried out to God and said, God, save me, a sinner. And God entered your life, and he gave you supernatural grace and supernatural power, and he raised you from sin into a life of holiness, into his mercy. Paul states it so eloquently, I quote this verse a lot because it means so much to me in 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Righteous? No. Religious? No. Real 
Uh, people who mean well? No. People who are doing good all of the time? No. Who did, why did Christ enter the world? He came with a very specific purpose. He came to save sinners. Sinners. Which the Apostle Paul says, of which I was the foremost. I was the chief of sinners. When the Apostle Paul was in prison in Philippi. And there was a great earthquake and all the jail cells swung open. And he saw, this is it, man. We're going to be rescued divinely and sovereignly by a holy move of the Spirit. And the Philippian jailer, realizing that the prisoners were going to escape, took his sword and was about to commit suicide because he would have to pay the penalty of those prisoners. The Apostle Paul stops and says, don't do it, we're all here. He preaches to him the gospel. And the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 says, what must I do to be saved? And he gives him these famous words in Acts 16, verses 30 to 31. And he brought him out and said, sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Listen, if you have not come to that place where you in your brokenness have said, what must I do to be saved? Then the word of God would tell you, believe entrust yourself to. Put all of your confidence, all of your faith, and all of your trust in Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. And you say, saved from what? Saved from eternal damnation and separation from God in hell. We all need a Savior. The best of us and the worst of us, we all need a Savior. Now, back to the text. A good example of this testing we see here in Matthew chapter 4, our scripture text today. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. The word for tempted here, again, is the verb form of the word parasmos, which is parazo. And it literally means, again, to be tested depending on the context. Now, I want to call your attention to something. Here's a positive usage of the word tempted. How do we know? Because the scripture tells us that Jesus was led by who? He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested, right? This wasn't a random act. Satan didn't just pop up on him and say, boo, I'm here. This was divine by design. And despite the devil's best manipulation of the scripture, Jesus passed the test with flying colors, did he not? As a matter of fact, it says he passed the test so well. In Matthew 4, uh, Matthew 4, 11, it says the devil left them. 
And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now, we were talking about the nature of God. So what does this mean here? Well, it means, number one, Christ did not sin because Christ, being the second person of the Godhead, was incapable of sin just as God cannot sin. And what joy and peace and satisfaction and holiness that we have a Redeemer who couldn't be penetrated by sin. Therefore, He was holy because He was holy. He is the only one who is well-equipped. He was the only one that was equipped to pay the penalty of sin. Christ was able to pay the penalty of sin because Christ was indeed sinless. He was sinless. And what joy and peace it is to have a Savior who has conquered both sin and death and cannot manipulate us. And this is precisely the reason James says in 1.13, let no one say I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Remember, church, it is an impossibility. It is not in God's nature, and it will never be in God's nature to manipulate, to tempt using evil so if that's the case then where does such temptation come from look at verse 14 but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust and this brings us to the nature of man unlike the nature of god who is holy i mean if if god is holy 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 then man must be sinful 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 Man is able to be penetrated. Man is able to be manipulated. Man is able to get carried away with his thoughts and his emotions that give birth to sin. James gives us three key words here in verse 14 that tell us where sin comes from. James makes the point, well, God can't tempt us. Where does it come from? It comes from our nature. James says here, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Now, lust doesn't always refer to sexual immorality or impurity of that nature. This word here for lust, again, is depending on the context, could be positive or negative. But this is talking about a lust that is fulfilling a desire of ourselves. That's what it's talking about. This sin of lust is part of our natural estate, and it's what Paul refers to in the flesh as the flesh. And the Scripture state, Jeremiah 17, 9, right? The heart is deceitful, wicked above all else. Who can know it? The Lord Jesus, in Mark chapter 7, Verses 21 to 22 says this, From within, out of the heart of man, precede evil thoughts, 
fornications, thefts, murders, adultery, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. In the heart of man, in the nature of man. Romans 7, verses 18 through 20. The Apostle Paul says of himself, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. Unlike God, humans are subject to sin because of our sinful nature. And it is that evil that produces longings for sin, remembrances of sin, and the lusts that take us away. James uses two words here. He says each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed. These words have very interesting definitions. Carried away is is taken from a hunting term. It's figurative of hunting. And what it is, is it, it is demonstrating one that's lured, lured to a trap. And a lord to a trap. And man is lured by, by lust. And he's a lord from safety and self-restraint. Enticed is another term. It means to bait with a hook, to set a trap. So you have one that's, that's luring. You know, if you go hunting and you use a, a, let's say you're hunting duck and you use a duck call, right? You're using the duck call to bring the ducks out because you're luring them. If you're going fishing, you're baiting a hook and you're putting it on a certain kind of lure that will attract the fish thinking it's something he wants to eat until what happens? Until he takes the bait and he is caught. James is liking our negative temptations to being lured away to being lured away. And let me tell you something. That is how sin works. You know, you ever notice something? Sin is a great liar, and sin will never fulfill what it promises. Sin will always say, if you do this, the pleasure you're going to derive from this is going to be phenomenal. You're going to have such great pleasure it's going to fill something in you and then when you take the bait all you experience is the brokenness and hollowness there is no pleasure in sin none whatsoever well if you harden your heart you might derive some temporal pleasure but there is no pleasure sin is a liar But there's good news. There's good news. For the believer in Christ, it doesn't have to finish that way. God has equipped the believer with the Holy Spirit, which indwells us. 
And that's why we always have to have a sensitive voice to the Holy Spirit. You'll hear me say time and time again, pay attention to the promptings of the Spirit no matter how odd they may appear to be. Because in many times it could be God testing you as to whether or not you're willing to be obedient. Are you willing to believe me? Are you willing to trust me? Even though it may not make sense to you, I may have a greater purpose for what I'm doing here. Romans 6, verses 6 and 7 say this, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. What can a slave do? A slave has no choice of their own. A slave can only do the bidding of its master. If the master says, get up at 4.30 in the morning and clean the house, that slave better be up at 4.30 in the morning and cleaning that house. He has no will of his own. Romans 8.26, this is such a blessing for me, and I pray that it's a blessing for you too. You probably know this as well. And in the same way, the Spirit himself also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The writer of Hebrews says, we have a high priest, we have a Savior who ever lives to make intercession for the saints. Do you know that the Lord is praying for you? That Jesus Christ is making intercession for you? Do you know that when you can't get the words out that the Spirit of God himself intercedes with groanings too deep for words and in unity with the Father, searches the heart, knows what the mind is and will bring all things together for good for those who love the Lord. Our trials do not have to end in sin and defeat. Believers in Christ do not have to run around like unreasoning animals driven by instinct fulfilling Every kind of sin imaginable. In Romans 6, as I previously mentioned, Paul tells us that we are no longer slaves to sin, for he who died is dead to sin. But he tells us instead we've become slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness. Hungering and desiring the will of God. Hungering and desiring to be pleasing to God. Hungering and desiring for holiness in our life. Hungering and desire for rightness in our life. And that the gospel would advance. And many would come to Christ. Psalm 119. The psalmist writes these words. Thy word I have hid in my heart then I may not sin against thee. God has given us his testimony in his word. God has testified through his spirit. God has testified through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And God's testimony is this, that I, the Lord... I who am holy can make you holy as well.
If you repent and you come to faith in Christ Jesus. Where do sinful testings, where do sinful temptations and trials come from? Well, we know it doesn't come from God. We know, number two, that inside of us are lust. And when we lust for something greater than we long for God, then we can get baited, carried away, and enticed by sin. But God has given the believer victory over these three witnesses. The blood of Christ, the word of God, and the Holy Spirit. Lastly, let's look at the nature of sin. Verse 15 and 16. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Sin is born when lust is conceived, and it is birthed in a person's heart. Unbridled lust, a desire for something other than God, a solicitation to evil, an inducement to sin. That word conceived simply means it's a verb to collect, to take, by implication to take part with. So when lust has conceived, what is the fruit of lust? Sin. And I want to make a point here. That lust that James is speaking about is not only the lust of the desire, but it's the lust of what is visualized. Many times when you're carried away by sin, that sin is visualized. It's visualized. And you visualize what? The supposed reward of sin. I'm going to get mad, and I'm going to go to that brother, and I'm going to let that brother have it. And you envision yourself with your back up being all nasty and putting someone in his place. And then it can conceive sin, and now it gives birth to sin. And what happens? You have a blow-up. You say something you didn't want to say. You get frustrated so bad that out of your mouth comes all kinds of, of filthy language. Because you got to get it out. It is sin that's not only thought about, but it is sin that is visualized. That's what James is talking about. And it's that which the person who is being enticed is willing to take the risk to satisfy the yearning that they have to do it. Isn't that crazy? Willing to take the risk. These are harmful desires, sinful desires. When those elements exist, sin is conceived and sin is birthed in the heart, and sin leads to death. Now, believers in Christ can, through the Holy Spirit, resist the flesh and overcome the tempting powers. Romans 8, verses 8 through 9. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Romans 8, 14. Who are the ones who have the Spirit of Christ? For all who are being led by the Spirit 
of God. These are the sons of God. Peter, in speaking to believers who are suffering various persecutions and trials, writes them to encourage them. And he writes this in 1 Peter 5, verse 9. He says, but resist him firm. But it doesn't end there, does it? Resist him firm in the faith. That's where you resist him. In the faith of God. Remember we talked about trials having trust, having faith in the plan, the purpose, and the person of God. Peter writes, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is not suffering for the sake of doing wrong. This is suffering for the sake of doing right. This is suffering for the gospel's sake. And all of this is done through faith. Faith in the plan, the purpose, the person of God and of Christ. Holding to Christ. My brothers and sisters, rather than to give in to sin in your trial, the admonition is hold to Christ. Hold to Christ for dear life. Endure, persevere, knowing that God will never tempt you or bait you to sin. Charles Spurgeon, and I'll close with this. A God whom we could understand would be no God. If we could grasp him, he could not be infinite. If we could understand him, he would not be divine. James 1.3, let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone hold fast hold to Christ keep the faith as Paul says henceforth is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me and not only to me but to all who love his appearing let's bow our heads in a word of prayer